0: Welcome to Four Questions Four, a podcast by Osgoode Hall Law School presenting great conversations about legal education, the profession, and the law. Today, Osgoode professor and legal historian Philip Girard will have four questions for Professor Emeritus Harry Arthurs, one of the most influential figures in Canadian law and legal education. In a career spanning six decades, Harry Arthurs has been an architect of important reforms in legal education, trailblazing commentator on the legal profession, a legal theorist and historian, a sometimes discordant voice in debates over constitutional and administrative law, an arbitrator and mediator in labor disputes, and a chair of numerous inquiries and reviews. He's also a former dean of Osgoode Hall Law School and president of York University. His memoir, Connecting the Dots, The Life of an Academic Lawyer, was recently published by McGill Queen's University Press and the Osgoode Society for Canadian Legal History. Harry, it's great to chat with you today. I must say, I really enjoyed reading your book. It's a humorous, frank and fearless account of your adventures as a labor lawyer and academic so question 1 why did you write this autobiography
1: well i have to st- answer the question by first by saying it's not really an autobiography it's not about my life my personal life my character development it's about all of my professional interests and projects it's an attempt on my part, to see what's happened to those projects, to look back on them and say, really, why did I get into that? Why was that of interest to me? And what relation did it bear to the other things I was doing in my life? So it's really, uh, why did I do it? Not for the reader. Reader doesn't really matter in these things. I did it for myself. I wanted to understand my life a little better than, than I had.
0: Well, and in addition to your career, you talk about your roots as well, which I found very interesting, and the influence of your roots on your eventual development
1: well that's that's all part of the picture i I certainly uh, when, when, whenever my professional projects touched on personal matters I, I hope I made full disclosure uh, my My roots were my East European uh, Jewish immigrant grandparents they as it turns out, had more of an influence on my thinking, on my values, on the way I conduct myself, than I, I would have expected had I not actually sat down and tried to figure it out.
0: Osgood recently engaged in uh, commemorations marking the 50th anniversary of its move to the York campus. Now, that move was quite controversial at the time uh, within the legal academy, and that brings me to question two. Can you take us back to the lead-up to that move and tell us why you supported it?
1: They say that if you remember the 60s, you probably weren't there. Uh, This was the 60s. Everything was up for grabs. Uh, Legal education, not least, but how the legal profession conducted itself, uh, how the government was run, how people would lead their personal lives, uh, relate to each other, uh, the place of uh, disadvantaged and marginalized groups in our society, and virtually everything about the university was up for grabs. Pedagogy was up for grabs. Governance, research, all of these things were were in a process of change. And it seemed to me that inevitably Osgood should take advantage of the moment, would take advantage of the moment, and would... would address all of the question marks that had accumulated around the way it carried on its business.
0: And could you talk about the significance of the move away from downtown because it was was a pretty important physical move uh, putting a lot of distance between the kind of downtown bar and court scene and uh, legal education up at this nascent university in the north of Toronto.
1: Well, interestingly, the the motivation for the move came from a source that would, you wouldn't normally think of as as progressive, as change-minded, namely the Law Society of Upper Canada. The law school had become a nuisance. The law school was expensive. It wasn't getting any government grants because it wasn't university-affiliated. It was taking up space that the society wanted for for other purposes. Uh, the students were bumptious, the faculty were rebellious, uh, and so the law society, uh, whether they approached York University or vice versa, I'm not sure, but the law society rapidly uh, acceded to York's suggestion that the law school move up, up to the York campus.
0: And. I- I understand that there was some uh, division within the professoriate at, at, uh, at Old Osgood about whether this move was a good thing or not. Could you uh, elaborate on uh, how your colleagues viewed this uh, this new possibility?
1: Perhaps I can do so by by quoting the first two interventions by members of the faculty when we were summoned to dinner by the benchers, and they said, subject to working out suitable terms, we're going to move the law school to York. I was the first person on my feet and I said, terrific, count on me, I'm fully in support. The dean on the other hand said, if there were 12 things to do with this law school, this would be number 13 on my list. That perhaps suggests some difference of opinion in the ranks.
0: Well, we're going to come back to legal education, but I want to ask you about labor law now, as that's the field with which you've been most consistently identified over the years. In the book, you express disappointment with the way that the field has declined in the last few decades as the traditional labor movement itself has declined uh, as a result of major economic, technological, and ideological changes over the last few decades. You take the reader through your own responses to this state of affairs. Question three, then. I wonder if you see signs of, if not a revival, perhaps a renewal, or maybe a reconstitution of labor law in the future.
1: Um, Maybe in the long distance future, it will do one of those things, revive, revise, revive, or or renew itself in some way. Uh, At the moment, I think circumstances are not propitious. Uh, Technology, in many ways, undercut the whole idea of mass production, which which was the basis of union organization in, in the democratic Western countries. Um, secondly, globalization undercut the abil- ability and willingness of government to support workers' interests and rights uh, and legislate in their favor. Uh, that enabled economics to trump politics, which was the basis, of the reverse situation was the basis of Labour's political party. Since it commanded uh, great support amongst workers, it was able to pressure governments, or indeed to become the government, uh, and to institute measures which would benefit workers. Uh, the demise of politics, the rise of economics as a formative force in public policy uh, put an end to that era. In addition, uh, cultural, sociological changes in the status, identity, uh, self-assertion of the working class, indeed one might say it's virtual dissolution underpinned the movement away from the protection of workers' rights, of, of workers' interests, uh, and, and left us with a big question mark. Uh, how would disadvantaged groups across society be protected? What, what means could the law give them? And what means could they take into their own hands in order to protect their rights and interests?
0: That is certainly true, but I'm wondering whether the increased consciousness of the gig economy, which is a recently invented word that we hear a lot about, uh, I wonder whether the kind of resistance to that and pushback against that is now going to... Lead to measures that are more protective, and I, I want to take you back to one of your earliest articles, which was actually about independent contractors versus um, uh, employees, and I'm I'm sure you know that this has been a big issue with Uber recently, and that uh, the Uber drivers are perhaps uh, enjoying some success in uh, in trying to ensure that that framing is converted away from independent contractor, which has been very disadvantageous to them, and towards employment, which may give a foothold for more traditional labor law to come back in.
1: The article you referred to is called The Dependent Contractor, and I had in mind specifically what what legal mechanisms might taxi drivers use as it happens in order to mobilize their collective power in their relations with their employer. And what I proposed was a new category of relationships be be created by law, the dependent contractor, and that dependent contractors could have all of the rights and benefits and legal advantages that that were enjoyed by uh, conventional employees. After a bit of pushing and shoving, uh, Ontario and most other jurisdictions in Canada adopted my recommendation. And for 50 years now, uh, that's been the case, that dependent contractors can organize collectively, dump truck owners, taxi drivers, variety of other people, not very different from Uber drivers. Uh, unfortunately, that hasn't empowered them and over time, I've come to ask myself just how much can law do to overcome injustice, to overcome inequality. And I've become, to be honest, frequently, uh, uh, I, I, I have to explain my position, but I, I do it by saying we often overestimate law's ability to cure social and economic and political problems.
0: Well, in one way we're going to go back now to legal education. Uh, In one way or another your whole adult life has been involved with legal education. In the book you express concern with what you label as the the fundamentalist turn in legal education in recent years driven by the law societies which advocates a back-to-basics regime aimed at producing practice-ready lawyers. Question four then is to ask if you could elaborate on that and I'll de- elaborate on your concerns and discuss how well you think the law faculties are balancing the preservation of their economy of their e- autonomy with responding to these new demands
1: starting in in the 60s and i would argue starting with osgood's move to york uh, legal education and legal scholarship went through a great renaissance uh, new teaching techniques uh, new research methodologies, uh, new relationships amongst researchers and amongst students um, were, were were sprouting at Osgood initially and then in my version of the history of legal <laughs> education across the country. Um, things were going on because people believed change was needed. We wanted to make the world a better place. Uh, some indication of of how strongly we felt that was that when for the first time an NDP government was elected in British Columbia in 1972 uh, within a matter of weeks three senior members of the Osgoode faculty were appointed to senior positions in the civil service of British Columbia. So we were really this, the epicenter as I saw it of the movement to put law at the service of progressive change. That was my ambition, and things seemed to be steaming along beautifully. Um, I don't think that the recent movement in legal education is motivated by the same kind of objectives. Uh, There is a notion abroad, especially in the legal profession, but to some extent in the legal academy, there is a notion abroad that lawyers' purpose is to serve individual clients and not the greater good of society. In order to do that, so the argument runs, lawyers must have certain uh, necessary competencies. That's the word is that's, that's in vogue at the moment. Uh, they must have knowledge of certain substantive legal fields, and they must be able to... Uh, Write letters, draft pleadings, uh, find their way around the courthouse, have a number of practical skills uh, that will enhance their ability to serve their clients. Those two things needn't be intention, except that different people have to teach them because they're seldom uh, found. Those those uh, the, the, the commitment to progressive reform and the practical skills of serving individual clients seldom reside in the same instructor. Uh, in order to know your way around the courthouse, you have to have lived in the courthouse for a while. In order to uh, advocate reform of legislation, you would have to know something about the legislative process, about, about politics and economics and sociology. Uh, those... Are, are different life experiences, different bodies of knowledge. So the two compete for resources in, in the new model. And one of, the, one of the competitors, the back-to-basics, fundamentalist view that lawyers exist to serve clients and must have practical skills, that view enjoys much wider and more influential support not just amongst practicing lawyers, but very much amongst students who aspire to be practicing lawyers. Now, what's wrong with giving uh, all of the resources or most of the resources to that part of the legal academy's project? I think a couple of things are wrong with it. In the first place, the legal profession does not in fact know what lawyers do and it's consequently unable to say what lawyers need to know in order to do those things. There's been no systematic assessment of how much time lawyers spend filling out forms, how much time they spend negotiating as opposed to advocating in court, uh, how much time they spend uh, cultivating new business, uh, how much who they work for. Uh, how they make their money who fails and who succeeds in the profession those things are utterly unknown to the legal profession which by the way is not much interested in them Uh, in bringing in about ten years ago uh... recommendations for a new regulatory regime by which the profession would intervene more actively to secure these uh, so-called reforms in legal education, the legal profession did no empirical research. And consequently, uh, people who are trained in the model of legal education proposed now uh, may come out with with certain practical skills which, which, A, are irrelevant because nobody in fact needs them, or they don't need them, Particularly in the in the practice role that they've assumed, let's say in a, in a suburban shopping mall, helping small businesses and people who are buying and selling houses, uh, that requires a completely different skill set from uh, launching IPOs on Bay Street or defending major criminal cases or litigating the Constitution and the Charter. So until we can stream people into particular practice uh, until we can stream people into particular practice roles it's it's silly to say that we are preparing them for practice or making them practice ready nonetheless the federation of law societies and its member provincial societies uh, the f- federation has mandated law schools to instruct their students in practical skills and intellectual competencies. Uh, By the way, if you read the list, it's a a very strange list. Uh, For example, uh, in a nod to my way of thinking, the Federation proposes that students should know about the sources of law what are the sources of law? As it turns out, sources of Canadian law are French law and British law. They have nothing to do with politics, nothing to do with show society, nothing to do with it, with the economy. Um, the source of law is law. Well, anyone who says that in this day and age doesn't know what they're talking about. Uh, they In the list of competencies, uh they specified that everyone should understand the use of the concept of the trust in a commercial context, not in a family law context, not in a public service context or charitable context, but only in a commercial context. Why would they say that? Only because they've never sat down and really thought about it. Typically, this report was likely written as most legal reports are by a bunch of people who get together at two o'clock in the afternoon, and some of them have flights at six and they have to leave for the airport at four there's an exchange of of of, of anecdotes uh, i uh, this is absolutely a true story. I was at a Canadian bar meeting that considered a motion put on the floor by someone that every student should be made to learn about the excise tax. Why the excise tax? Because so many people smoke and every cigarette packet carries an excise stamp. And if millions and millions of people are handling that stamp every day, that should be a mandatory subject on every law school curriculum. I heard that with my own ears. Uh, So I think to to boil it all down, even if one could accept the proposition that there's a standard legal education that every law student must be subjected to, uh, it's it's proceeding without the necessary underpinning of empirical evidence.
0: For a long time, for most of my teaching career, certainly the bargain, the implicit bargain between the law societies and the universities seemed to be, you guys can provide the basic knowledge and intellectual skills in the university and then we'll take care of the rest in articling. (laughs) And that seemed to be a division of labor that was stable for quite some time and it really meant that after the 1960s, the law societies weren't terribly active in the field of legal education. Yet in the last 15 years, that bargain seems to be breaking down and the law societies have come back into the picture in a big way. I wonder if you could talk about why that has happened. Question four, could you elaborate on that thought and discuss how well you think the law faculties are balancing preserving their autonomy with responding to these new demands?
1: Well, I think there are several answers to that. One of them is the reason they they adopted a hands-off attitude from roughly the beginning of the 60s uh, until uh, about 10, 12 years ago. The reason they adopted this hands-off attitude was because there had been such a huge fight in Ontario over who controlled legal education. But historical memory fades, and as that fight was less and less a factor in the political and psychological calculations of the parties. Uh, I, I, th- I think it became easier for law society to think about flexing its muscles, using its power uh, to, to regulate legal education, that's one reason. Secondly, um, over all those years, access to the entry, uh, access to the profession, was seriously restricted. There were a finite number of law schools, and uh, that meant that that lawyers had a relatively advantageous uh, opportunity to earn their livings and pursue their careers. That began to change in several respects. First of all, a couple of new law schools, several new law schools, opened over the last dozen or so years. Uh, But more importantly, lawyers educated offshore began to arrive in Canadian uh, jurisdictions. And at the moment, the largest single cohort of lawyers called to the bar in Ontario every year is is the cohort that was educated offshore. Uh, It would be cruel to say many people pursued the offshore option because they couldn't get into Canadian law schools, but I think that's probably the case. Uh, Add to that, it's not cheap to go to the UK or Australia or the US if you're a legal education, so probably some element of economic advantage accrued uh, and and skewed the population a little bit towards wealthier people. Uh, Thirdly, the, the market for legal services changed quite considerably as a result of all of the factors that changed the rest of the economy. Globalization, for example, uh, meant that the role of Canadian law firms as local representatives of offshore corporations, that role diminished. Uh, the, many of these Canadian law firms that enjoyed uh, their, their influential position in the past, uh, merged into global law firms, who now were themselves subsidiaries. Secondly, the demise of the Canadian subsidiary, the freestanding General Motors Canada, uh, which exists as a, basically as a corporate shell at the moment, uh, where few decisions are taken locally meant that the, uh, few decisions about, about uh, what's produced, how it's produced, labor relations, f- financing and so on, those decisions under globalization have been centralized. There's been what I call the hollowing out of corporate Canada and that's meant less business for law firms that used to serve corporate Canada. Thirdly, Technology. A lot of the time of lawyers, I, I did this myself as, as, as an articling student, uh, was spent on, on things like manually searching land titles or corporate records. So much of that can be done electronically now. Uh, so many factors combined to make life for new graduates riskier. Less, more, more problematic and less certain. And I think that that's uh, fed back into the governing bodies which now are trying to control the economic circumstances under which new and existing practitioners uh, practice.
0: Well, Harry, your memoir provides an enormous amount of food for thought on all the topics that we've discussed, and thanks very much for speaking with me today. My pleasure, You've been listening to 4 Questions 4 by Osgood Hall Law School. We hope you'll join us again next time.